This is Operation Experiment, a secret base far north of the Arctic Circle. Experiment was the code name for this top priority scientific expedition. These men arrived here on X day minus 60. It has taken them the full two months to get ready. Timing is perfect thus far. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the IMMP podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. The men are ready. The equipment is ready. And it's June 2021, and we've decided that June is Ray Harryhausen month. That's right, people. Most of you hear us via audio, but if you could see us right now in the studio, we'd be at a slightly lower frame rate than the rest of the room around <laughs> us. So, But we'd, we'd be very fascinating and very lifelike in our movements, which is impressive and cool. Now, we're a year late to start this because June 2020 was the centenary celebration for Ray Harryhausen. He was uh. born... In 1920. I'm not entirely sure that June 2020 happened. Like, I'm not as with sure. most of 2020. Yeah. So, I, I, so we're starting out with the month of his 101st birthday. And this is probably also not the last June is Ray Harryhausen month because he was involved in a lot of movies. My goodness, this man has a filmography that just keeps going. And when I piece it together, I realize how many of these I saw when I was a kid. Not all of them. And there are some key omissions there that I might have to mention. But I saw a lot of Ray Harryhausen movies growing up, and they made an impression. And in some cases, it wasn't until some time later that I realized, oh, this is the same guy who was involved creating the effects for all these different movies. And then I started to rewatch them and see a progression of how this developed. So that's what I'm trying to do for you now, Ian, is, is fill in your, your knowledge of Ray Harryhausen and help you experience the way it developed over time. And I'm very much appreciating that because you, in raising me, have already shown me an intriguing little subset of Ray Harryhausen before this. Not everything we're going to be watching, but there's occasional things where you, were, you way before the podcast was even thought of, had this, oh, you've got to see this. <laughs> and I wound up seeing some of this early, and it's actually some of the Ray Harryhausen stuff that I'd seen that a lot of my peers had never even looked back to seeing that set me up as a film fan early on that then like that became part of what people knew. Oh, Ian's watched old movies. <laughs> my teachers would know that, oh, the other kids are going off to play like Call of Duty. Hey, Ian, what are you doing over the weekend? I think we're going to watch the Sinbad movies. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. But there's always that beat of pause as they were like, surprised that I'd seen these things. But I loved seeing them. So I'm excited to get to do these months because I want to fill out my Harryhausen decks and see all the different monsters and such. <laughs> so we are going to go more or less chronologically, but we're also going to group Harryhausen movies by theme. And this, this, this June, those two ideas go together. Because we watched the first two movies in which he was the visual effects director. Not the first movie he worked on. The first movie he worked on for effects was Mighty Joe Young from 1949. He, well, he is his credited as first technician on that movie. And I never saw that as a kid. I think I saw it much, much later. But that was not a movie that made an impression on me as a kid because I never happened to see it for one reason or another. Hmm. Now, if I had connected that, oh, Ray Harryhausen worked on it, and he worked on all these other movies, I might have sought it out, but I didn't know that at the time. The wonders of modern internet movie databases and the, and the like means that you can more easily see the entirety of an artist's work in that sense. And you can see why he would have been drawn to work on Mighty Joe Young. It was a guerrilla movie. Oh, yeah. And- That was a genre at the time. King Kong from the 30s is what inspired him to get into this field watching that over and over when he was a kid and wanting to bring that kind of, of amazement and wonder to life is what kind of sparked his career. My goodness, what a spark, because just in these first two, there's some pretty impressive stuff. So what we watched for this episode of the uh, IMMP 
were the first two movies in which he was the lead for visual effects. And those were 1953's The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, and from 1955, It Came from Beneath the Sea. Yes, that's right, people. We have a nautical theme. It's, it's monsters of o- the ocean. Now, it's important to keep these distinct, though, because there are some, some key differences. So I'm going to try to summarize how they're different. In The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, a, an atomic weapons test in the Arctic arouses a dinosaur that makes its way to New York City and attempts to destroy the city. Now, in It Came From Beneath the Sea, an atomic weapons test under the ocean arouses a giant octopus, which makes its way to San Francisco and attempts to destroy the city. I love Mad Libs. (laughs) I love Mad Libs so much. I mean, my goodness. And the fact that the first of these is... Sometimes credited with being an inspiration for Godzilla. Well, yeah, it was the first movie, first live-action movie at least, in which atomic weapons woke up a giant monster. And it came out a year before Godzilla. And right between these, Godzilla came out. So it's like, (laughs) there's just an entire style going on internationally at the time of these fears getting codified into a creature. And it would take nothing away from the creators of Godzilla. I don't know if, if the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms inspired the makers of Godzilla. I don't know if they saw it, although I'm guessing they probably did. Probably did, but... It would take nothing away from them to say that this was one of the inspirations, because Godzilla was still its own thing, and it expressed those filmmakers' views and fears and concerns about what it was uh, dealing with. It's the fact that we know Godzilla's name immediately, says they did something amazingly. The fact that I had to look up and still don't know if I'm pronouncing right, Redosaurus? Redosaurus? I'm not sure. He was a lot more boring. He was a lot more generic. (laughs) He seemed kind of like a monster that guy, because he was generically lizardy, but with just enough monkey to be scrambly climby. I, th- I think you got it. Redosaurus, that's as close as I'd come. Oh, yeah. First name Steve, last name <laughs> Redosaurus. And, oh, and we, we've, we've got to talk a little bit about the opening <laughs> of The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, because it starts in the Arctic, <sighs> and it starts with this weapons test, this very creatively named weapons test. Oh, yes. <laughs> the weapons test is Operation Experiment. Yes! It's the most generic thing, and it's the entire opening is so absolutely intense with itself. There's nothing going on, but it's got the most dramatic countdowns and the dramatic stares at a horizon full of ice, and it's it's the entirety of what so many other arctic research lab movies decide to do slow build-up this one just decides no we're gonna move quickly and powerfully and immediately ruin any tension we have by trying to take ourselves so dang serious i love it i yeah with with the countdowns and that that voiceover guy who's so intense about it the voiceover guy's giving timestamps every single moment as to (laughs) what will happen I wanted him to tell me when the cookies would be done in the commissary alongside everything else, because he's got it down to the minute. It is now HR minus 56 seconds. Every man here knows his job. He does it quickly, efficiently, silently. And there's another movie we have to acknowledge when we're thinking about the opening of this movie. And of course, that is another movie we've talked about here on the IWMP. The Thing Thing from Another world. World. Because, again, it's, it's a, it starts out, or it is actually the thing from another world. I guess it starts in the Arctic, but then they move you know, farther north to this um, research base where they f- found the flying saucer. Are you kidding me? It's got Kenneth Toby. 
that's the real link here. It's got Kenneth Toby as an Air Force officer. It's, it's like, like it's like he didn't leave. It's like he just stuck around and waited for the next thing. <laughs> and the thing came out two years earlier than this. Thing from Another World was 1951. Is it like there was a casting director who knew, hey, you know, Ken's got the uniform and he doesn't mind cold. Let's get Ken. <laughs> I... Hey, Ken, remember when you said you forgot a pack of cards back on the set when we did that first filming? You want to go pick it up? Or else they just, somebody like snuck him pages of dialogue to read. And he's like, how does this fit with the thing from another? No, no never mind, Ken. Just just stand in the uniform and, and say the lines. Uh, just and then they edited those into this. Just film a double. That works. But that's that's really, he. Um, uh, he's... In this movie, from beginning to end, including far after it, uh, it moves out of the Arctic into New York. But in some weird ways, as an actor, he seems more chill in this one. <laughs> he seems more like, I've gone through this before. Just because his line reads are a little different. And the pacing in this film, I'm just, I, I've got to get this out now. A lot of films Ray Harryhausen works on have weird pacing. But that's more because of films at the time having what is, by today's standards, weird pacing. <laughs> and so there's always a lot of early setup with a whole lot of, well, as you know, Bob, kind of filling in the plot details. And then very long, protracted fight scenes of actually wrapping up the monster and the problem. I will give this credit. That's actually more true to life about when something happens. There's a lot of people who know how something went wrong and a lot of extra time taken to clean it up in the end. It's accurate, but it's not cinematically fascinating in the same way. And that's interesting to see. And I, I would agree that that's true of a lot of, a lot of movies of the time and a lot of Harryhausen movies. To me, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms stands out in that I think it is paced really well, even for a modern audience. That that story moves. It does have twists in it, I'll admit. That caught me off guard. It's not a slow drag out. It's kind of a stutter step. Because it'll yeah. have those moments. That, but that, that means it's closer to the arc I expect nowadays. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of a good mystery, too, in that it's, it's the process of piecing together. What is this thing that some of the people, what is this creature that some of the people at the, uh, the Arctic test... Uh, saw and then piecing it together with reports of sea monsters and such all down the maritimes and the east coast until it reaches new york and we get some pretty cool scenes of splitting between like inside the lighthouse with the two guys working it and then outside as ray harryhausen's beast climbs up the lighthouse and destroys a model lighthouse and it's well intercut between the guys falling over inside and the monster outside. It makes that very believable scene. That's what really sells the stop motion work that Harryhausen supervised. That scene is, is that, a, that scene is actually the scene depicted in the short story the entire uh, film is based on. Oh, is that right? Yes, the Foghorn. And that was by uh, Ray Bradbury, wasn't it? Yes. I, I gather that uh, Harryhausen and Bradbury were really good friends because of, of similar sensibilities and working on projects like this. I take it that's the case, but it, for being the first movie that has him doing this stuff, my goodness, that is a brilliant way to show it off right at the beginning. Yes. Like, there is no buildup of bits and pieces here. He is working on my Joe Young, but then the first thing that you can call a Harryhausen movie in that sense, boom, we're getting full Harryhausen. Yes. And that is amazing. And he already knows these intricate parts of this craft, not just doing the stop motion animation really well, but I'm, I'm sure he worked with the director and the editor of the movie to, to make a cut that, as you were pointing out, juxtaposes the stop motion with live action and full-size sets and really makes it seem believable once you are wrapped up in, in the movie's story. And they also do a good job, in this movie especially, of tantalizing you with glimpses of the monster from the beginning. And it takes a few of these sightings before you see the monster in full and you really get a sense of what they're dealing with. 
And by that time, you're A, eager to see more of the monster, and, and B, ready to be amazed when it shows up. You know, the f- interesting thing about doing stop motion is that also means that there's multiple versions of the model for different sizes and scales and directions. It's the harder way to do that. Showing different bits and pieces actually is more work. So that means that is super intentional. It's not stretching something out. It is clear and precise in that sense. And that is even more so impressive because that's extra work to make it subtle. And this mystery that we were talking about where you see a little more of the monster each time and they connect these sea monster sightings with this dinosaur, it it culminates, as we mentioned earlier, in the, the monster coming ashore in New York. And, of course, going on a rampage killing lots of people, destroying uh, some landmarks and things. And eventually the military finds a way to to subdue it. Well, the military finds the way that most militaries find the way to subdue anything Harryhausen created. Which is, after bullets don't work as well as they hope, they figure out to use electricity. Well, actually it was radiation in that one. Oh, it was radiation in that one. It was a radioactive grenade. Because they also, they found out that the monster was not only giant and angry and able to smash things it was also carrying some kind of horrible ancient disease that was getting sick anybody who got near it or near its blood etc which made me think a lot about cloverfield yeah there's something very cloverfield about the the last act of this movie and i think that was awesome this is extremely cloverfield but they had to essentially destroy it all at once they couldn't just burn it because then some of the smoke would carry the the disease they couldn't um they had to contain it in some way so yeah they they figured out some kind of radiation bazooka shell that they had an expert marksman fire through a wound they had made previously oh yeah to destroy it it, it was kind of the shoot it in the scale that's already <laughs> missing storyline right. bit yeah right and it was trapped inside a roller coaster Oh, yes. Which turned into this cage of fire, which, you know, I'm not sure how the fact that it's also radioactive makes all the smoke that it's generating safe, but science was different in the 50s. Science was different in the 50s. That's a fine description. (laughs) But apart from some parts of that final act being a little bit too slow, I thought the pacing was really good. And I'll tell you, it, it, it pulled me in. And part of that was the characters. Part of it was, um, you know, Kenneth Toby. We also had, we had a triangle that shows up in a few Harryhausen movies. We've got the military man, the handsome male scientist, and the beautiful female scientist. The, mili- the military man and the beautiful female scientist usually wind up hitting it off, I think, in most <laughs> yes, of these. Yes, they do. And similarly, in It Came From Beneath the Sea. We have the military man, although in this case, not an Air Force officer, but a submarine commander, also played by Kenneth Toby. Yes. <laughs> and then we also have the, the beautiful scientist and the handsome young scientist to be our, our triangle again. And for some reason, whatever military man is somehow involved in the beginning of this, whoever was overseeing the, uh, the Operation Experiment um nuclear test atomic bomb test or the commander of the atomic submarine that was the first one to encounter the giant octopus from it came from beneath the sea he's like in charge of dealing with the monster it's like oh you found it you clean it up it's kind of like getting to discover something and you get to name it but instead you discover something and you get to kill it yeah (laughs) i i'm i mean these are your your 50s archetype of the super competent American military man, but I've got to think that the specialized knowledge and training and experience from commanding a submarine isn't necessarily the same training and knowledge and experience that's most useful in hunting a giant octopus. It would be kind of cool to see the story of either the guy they've got who's a specialist that they do call in, or (laughs) the team of guys who each were pulled off of whatever they were good at before and tasked to kill it, suddenly being all brought in to deal with one of these. That could be fun. Now, fortunately, he does have sort of a a managerial role, and the scientists are doing a lot of the work in terms of identifying the creature and figuring out ways to, to destroy it. And that's true in both movies. 
And I really like the dynamic of the scientists in uh, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, especially. The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms has a better character dynamic. The characters actually seem to, like, have more personality and do more. But the, the pacing is more there what I was slower. In some ways, a problem with doing the two films and them being similar is that I keep on imagining that one is the other, which means I, I feel like I watched one movie with flat, with slightly more flat acting and slower pacing, and one with these really cool dynamic characters <laughs> and these plot twists. And I'm realizing, no, that's two films and I've swapped sections of them because of this interchangeable nature. I, I liked the fact that in The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, it was a, a physicist and a paleontologist who, because of the weird nature of what's going on, wind up working together. But I love the scene where, like, they're in her apartment, she's the paleontologist, and she's showing Tom Nesbitt, the physicist, played by uh, Paul Christian, pictures of dinosaurs. And it's like he's looking through books of mugshots. Oh, yeah. Oh. No, it was kind of like this, but the nose was bigger. And eventually, yes, that's the guy. I was expecting a lineup after that. Yeah. It's like, it's like get, get all the usual monster suspects <laughs> and have them turn left and turn right at, on a giant, like, <laughs> set of height markers painted on the side of a building. And in the, um, and it came from beneath the sea, they were both of the scientists, trying to figure out what this, uh, this creature was from the little scraps that were left over from the, uh, the attack on the submarine. Well, they figure it out pretty quick because it, it's nice when you've got a monster movie that starts out with, the submarine got attacked. Well, we cleaned up the submarine and we found this stuck to it. <laughs> well, go get that to the lab. They drop it at the lab. Oh, that's a giant octopus sucker. <laughs> it's radioactive. Here, let me check something on one of our octopuses. A couple days later. Hey, we irradiated one of the ones we got. Turns out when you do that, bad things happen. This one can't get any fish anymore, and we can only imagine what the big guy's doing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was like, because it was radioactive, it was scaring away its usual food sources, and that made it angry and hungry. And for some reason, that also meant it's like, well, I guess in for a penny, in for a pound. If I'm irradiated, I'll eat only irradiated things. <laughs> so I'll go try to eat this irradiated submarine was the idea it had. And there again, they finally destroy it by shooting it with a, an a, like atomic torpedo, I think. But again, they had to have it buried in the monster and then run away before they detonated by remote control. Oh, yeah. And well, that's the, th this is where I was getting confused before. That's the one where they find the standard Harryhausen weakness. The electricity. Which, the electricity. Yeah. Harryhausen monsters are brought to life because we have electrical tools like cameras to cr cause still creatures to become moving. And in the narrative of all these stories, if you pump electricity back through them, they're static like a model. <laughs> and that's one of those like meta ideas that Whoa. I've always loved where electricity bring the brings these to life and electricity keeps them from living. That's and it's always a stasis between those. Yeah, that's kind of trippy. I like that. <laughs> That's weird. But they literally drop a giant net and electrify like that and the Golden Gate Bridge just to like capture this thing. Oh, right, right. It's 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 attacking um San Francisco uh harbor and they they first they stretch a submarine net to keep it out and then they electrify the submarine net. There's an entirely different version of that film where they accidentally uh cause electrolysis and create a giant plume of hydrogen over <laughs> the city that is very very bad please no there's also uh, there's a lot of stuff in the harryhausen films that reminds me of nintendo fights oh yeah like they always like hit the thing once realize that it bounces off hit the thing again make a dent hit the thing a third time and kill it you hit the boss three times and it goes down that's how you fight anything in nintendo find the weak point hit it three <laughs> times i'm like i can almost hear the so long eh, bowser as they throw the giant <laughs> octopus away every it, there's something it's so classic it like immediately triggers all these other thoughts of other media because it's just deep rooted in the style of so many things yeah, at, at this, this point. 
it's a, it's influenced things that don't even know it's they're, uh, they're being influenced by them at this point. Exactly. And you talk about, talk about pacing and you talk about influence also. I've got to give props to Cecil Kellaway, who played the older, experienced Dr. Thurgood Elson. He was the mentor of the, the young and beautiful Lee Hunter, played by Paula Raymond. And Elson was a great character, somebody who really embodied the, I, I live for knowledge and I'm excited by it. And the fact that there was this ancient species that has come back to life. He recognized the danger, but he was still enthralled by getting a chance to see it and getting a chance to, um, to share this knowledge with the world. And that leads him to request from, from the, the Navy their help in uh, using a bathyscaphe, or bathysphere, to dive down to the, the marine trenches where they believe this creature may have existed before or where it may have gone to because it's where remains of these creatures have been found in the past. This dinosaur, he may have made his way down from the Arctic to find these places in the North Atlantic where its kind used to, to dwell. And that scene with the diving bell, the bathyscaphe, I think that is so well done. I think the effects still hold up today, these, this model work. I think the pacing of that scene with the cuts back and forth between how deep things were going to the people on the surface, on the boat, to the people who uh, were in the, the diving bell, that is a great tense scene. That I, I could rewatch that any number of times. That is that is one of those good moments because seeing them animate the the monsters and such is one thing, but having any of the miniature work that involves environment or that s sense of scale can be so powerful as well. Because that's where it gets into this: you're augmenting space instead of just actors, and I love that. And that's something where I think in the in the 70s, a lot of this would have been done with uh, a painting on glass. And in the, certainly in the, the, the 21st century, this stuff would have all been done with CGI and nobody would have broken a sweat. Not, not to minimize the work that goes into CGI, but it's a different kind of craft. He was doing all of this with models and with cinematic composites putting together live action and stop motion creatures and all these things. And occasionally you can see the seams literally and figuratively, but so often it's when you're caught up in the story, it really works very well. And the kind of miniature work that we see with the, the diving scene is an example of, yeah, he's known for creatures, but he can do this other stuff really, really well. Oh Yeah. One thing that we watched black and white versions for both of these. We did. There is colorized versions. And one thing I don't know is whether or not that changes how these look. I wonder. I mean, during the process of colorizing, you could probably hide some of the, the flaws in the, the composite work. So I'd be interesting to go back and watch the colorized versions of these. Because a lot of the DVDs we got or the Blu-rays that we got to, to, to watch these on uh, have both. So that would be interesting. Exactly. You were describing the different methods, different time periods would you've used for that different, you know, eras of cinema. And the painting on glass gives you this crisp line flat look. You can do some shading, but it's all cartoon work on that. And your C your CGI is nowadays able to get more realistic and they're able to do a lot more compositing because our processing speed has risen so that we can do the multiple layers of ambient light and rake tracing and filters for dust and particles and all of that without lighting CPUs on fire. But back then, one of the things that the models gave was shadow and form, where if you know the sun was up here when you filmed this shot, you can put a light up here and film your little model from there, and you can match the shadow. And suddenly, the fact that your object is an object in 3D space adds to the realism. Your, your creature's head is flapping its big jaw, but it's also casting a shadow onto its chest, which makes it look more real. And so I want to see if colorizing does anything to that, because 
if the colors remove any of that 3D effect of the models, what the models gave to it, I'd be worried that the color is losing more than it's adding. Yeah, that that is interesting because sometimes it's described that black and white filmmaking is painting with light and shadow, and that works so well with this uh, this kind of stop motion work that he was doing. And you're talking about the getting the, the lights and the shadows correct for the, the models because they are physical. There's a lot of that that you can do with good 3D modeling in, in CGI. You can decide where the lights are, and the physics engine will determine where the shadows are cast. And that's all terrific, but the shadows that you described are one of the things that just lend this sort of physical weight to the models that Harryhausen used, that even really, really, really good CGI never quite has for me. We've not even been able to get close to some of these things until more recently. And that's, that's part of why this has still always been so impressive. And why the fact that they understandably are running on a shoestring budget half the time for these things is also so impressive. We kept calling the... The It Came From Beneath the Sea, an octopus. But in interviews, no, they didn't have time to make eight tentacles. The model had six. It was <laughs> called the Sixtopus on set because they were running on sh- such a stru- shoestring. They only had three quarters of a beast. And they would always just assume that two tentacles were still submerged. Huh? Yeah, two tentacles <laughs> were wrapped on the other side of the pole or off screen somewhere or just cropped out of frame enough. You never see eight because it doesn't have eight. <laughs> and that right there added it to me because if it wasn't for an interview later on, no one outside of the set would have known they were doing it so carefully. <laughs> and, you know, thinking about what he was doing and, and the budgets and the technology, the fact that he was making these effects to go with early 50s cinematography is very significant in that he didn't have to match the video quality of ultra-high-def digital cinematography that feature films might be shot in today, and the CGI can, can work to match. He just had to get it as good as the, the film stock and the cameras would make all the live-action shots. And that helped with that blending, I think. Helped make those cuts we were talking about between the stop-motion and the live-action easier to take. And that'll be something interesting to pay attention to as we continue to watch Harryhausen movies as they progressed through the decades. To see when filmmaking changed and when he went into color and all these differences. How did he change and does it still hold up? Are they, do, do, do we still appreciate it the way we did in these early uh, 50s Harryhausen movies? Absolutely. It is something to note the fact that we are, we are calling these Harryhausen movies the entire time. He was one of the the lead, if not the entire lead of the special effects department. But these are different films with different writers. Um, the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms is directed by Eugene Laurie, and it came from Beneath the Sea, directed by Robert Gordon. These are entirely different crews. These are entirely different scripts and writers but the Harryhausen stuff is so impactful they all become Harryhausen movies that that is interesting i mean i wonder if there are any other any other crafts that are part of filmmaking other than the director and maybe screenwriter where there are people we tend to think of the movies they worked on as their movies i mean the default is the director you know, the auteur theory the director is in charge of the whole thing and it's the director's vision and yet I never think of these as Eugene Lowry movies or others' movies, not to take anything away from the directors. It's Harryhausen who had the impact, at least on me. I'm trying to think, were there any others? It's not quite the same, but it's almost the way people describe a Marvel movie, having a look or a style. It's this cohesive tone and visual palette that goes across these, despite different directors. They're not cohesive yeah. narrative like Marvel and all these other things do. But there's something of like, this is the early idea of that, where 
you sit down and you know, I'm going to get this sensation because I get to see this kind of spectacle. I would compare that more to the Universal Monster movies. It's a movie studio that had a certain style and vision for a certain kind of movie. And even if Dracula and Frankenstein and the Wolfman and the Mummy had different directors, different screenwriters, there was a co- consistent style from the studio. That's definitely what's happening with Marvel, I think. Yeah. I don't know of any like CGI. I mean, maybe a Weta workshop. Yeah. Can, but then still, we don't think of Lord of the Rings as a Weta workshop series. No. Even though we can acknowledge that. Well, we recognize I, I, the- I, I might, but that's just because I'm obsessed <laughs> like that. And it's like, oh yeah, I can see how the Thunderbird, the new Thunderbirds in Lord of the Rings had the same guys working on the silicone molds. <laughs> but that's just because I'm that kind of nerd. <laughs> so, And we might recognize the importance of a John Williams score to all of the movies that he worked on. But we don't tend to think of them as John Williams movies. We don't think of Jaws and Star Wars and Harry Potter as all John Williams movies. So is Harryhausen unique in that way? He might be. Yeah. He deserves it if he is. Again, not taking anything away from the the directors and writers he worked with, but he changed a certain kind of cinema that that appealed to a certain kind of nerd. There's there's something very distinct about being able to get this opportunity across our our months here that we're going to line up all of his movies one after another like this <laughs> and watch through them in order and see what moves across all of them when you put those frames together and i'm making a giant metaphor <laughs> about the way he animated stuff here but it's kind of fallen apart on me <laughs> now with these two particular movies we're talking about here the beast from Twenty Thousand fathoms and it came from beneath the sea watching them in order like we did was a little bit of a letdown yeah. Because I thought The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms was so much better. I still like the, the, it came from beneath the sea, and it came from beneath the sea. I probably saw before I ever saw The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, and probably saw it more often when I was a kid, just because of what happened to be on TV. But just in terms of what, the way it holds up altogether as a film, I think the earlier one, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, is a better movie. I think, I think you're right. We're going to have to do double uh, ending card bits for this. I guess so. Is it time? I think it's time. So, first things first. Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. By the way, Creature was in the Arctic, not under the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) Well. Not what it said on the tin. I guess it swam that far later. And it was going to the, the marine trench where its kind used to dwell, so... I guess it was originally, its hometown was 20,000 fathoms. Okay, yeah, it's hometown. It had its mail forwarded to the Arctic (laughs) for a few uh, millennia, and then it uh, came back home. That makes sense. Okay, (laughs) I'll give it that. But uh, first things first, screen or no screen? Screen. Screen. Beast from 20,000 fathoms, it still holds up. Oh, yeah. Even if the only thing you're screening is that lighthouse moment. My goodness. That's interesting. We each have these. I, the lighthouse moment is great. I love that scene. But for some reason, it's that diving scene with the, <laughs> with the, with the bathyscaphe that really gets me. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's something for everybody in these. And then it's the question of revive, reboot, or rest in peace. And here's the tricky part. We're going to be discussing each of these movies on these three. But we have to acknowledge the fact that we're doing a theme month as a whole. Mm-hmm. Making this decision does not mean anything about Ray Harryhausen's work in that. You can't really mimic it in the same way. And I think that if we, if we assume you'd have to, it wouldn't be the same. I think that we're going to have to have a loving revive or reboot or, any, or rest in peace for Harryhausen's style as a whole at some point. But we're talking about the movies individually, and that's a whole different issue. Yeah, I think that's important. We, we need to assess the movies independent of how much we like Harryhausen and, and the work that he did, did on them. So, so, is that the question now for Beast from 20,000 Fathoms? Yeah, I think we're doing the movie, the movie, and then, and then Harryhausen in these yeah. two films overall. 
revive, reboot, or rest in peace for the beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Uh, putting aside the revive joke about something that was woken up by an atomic <laughs> bomb. <laughs> um, I didn't think of that. <laughs> I was going to say rest in peace. And I, I'm, I'm not there, but I was going to say rest in peace because Revive originally had me too tied up in how this movie was made and who made it and when it was made, etc. And Reboot, you know, it's it's been rebooted. We talked about the influence that it had on Godzilla. We talked about how similar Harryhausen's next movie was to this. We've had other versions of this before. I don't think a reboot makes sense because it's been done, as as we've sometimes observed. A reboot is moot because... Yeah. It, people have remade this movie in their own way many, many times. We, we cited the shaky version that some people find nauseating, known as Cloverfield. I love it. <laughs> that's a whole other thing. But now that I think about it, I think maybe there is room for a revival. Oh. Maybe because, you know, we've got a lot of other issues. In the 50s, it was uh, concerns about proliferation of atomic weapons and atomic energy uh, now, it maybe it is more uh, the impact of climate change. And I could see things being awakened in the Arctic because the Arctic is changing. And someone puts two and two together that, oh, didn't something similar to this happen back in the 50s when they were, when they were testing atomic weapons up here? Except now it's not the relatively localized area that a low-yield atomic weapon will affect, but it's a much bigger part of the Arctic Circle that's being affected. Oh, good. How many things are going to wake up, and what are they going to be? Oh, goodness. We we knocked one of these things loose with a bomb way back when. <laughs> now there's the entire other rest of the hunting pack it was going around with, th- like breaking off in a giant chunk and slowly melting out at sea. That's terrifying. So, I kind of love it. I would like to see a revival, another movie in the same continuity set in the 21st century, but hearkening back to the fact that what happened in the 50s and the attack on New York by the uh, Rotosaurus, was it, actually happened. And if they did make this revival, though, I would hope that if they would do the effects with stop motion. Hey, Leica. <laughs> yeah, you, absolutely. Use the, you, use the modern high-def cinematography Use all the modern technology, but use stop motion rather than CGI. Is this the point where I get to discuss sandstone 3D printing, being able to do multiple colors at once using a super glue substrate in order to create multiple 3D models of a thing way more rapidly than we could before and be able to make stop motion way more affordable for most cinematic productions than they even consider? I think I just did. Yeah, it wouldn't help for me to say no now. <laughs> okay, good. Yay. I'm glad you did. <laughs> So yeah, I've got to say screen and yeah, give me a revival. Give me a long, a long distance sequel to this movie. That so what do you be, think, Ian? That, uh, I was going to do the same thing. I was going to say rest <laughs> in peace. And now I'm all on board with this idea. Yes, please. Oh my goodness. I mean, in some unfortunate ways, the popularity and the success of its later interpretations like Godzilla have kind of done this already, but still... Yeah, it it would be the selling point for me would be to make it in that same continuity. And then it came from beneath the sea. Same questions, huh? Yeah. Screen or no screen? Um I mean, I can go first on this one if you need yeah, me to. Yeah, I'll go you go first. I'm going to say no screen. If I want dramatic tension involving octopi, I'll play the DLC to Splatoon 2 again. <laughs> this did not quite catch me the same way. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I there are so many Harryhausen movies, and I it's I feel like I'm being, uh, uh, I'm betraying my younger self who is such a fan of his, but it is so similar to Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, and it is an inferior version. Spend the time on something else. Spend the time on other Ray Harryhausen movies. You don't need to watch It Came From Beneath the Sea. It hurts me because I think that the scientists are so much more energetic in that one. Yeah. They've got so much more actual, like, 
agency and style sometimes, and that means that I kind of feel sad that I'm saying no to it because all the other moments drag, <laughs> but the scientists are actually like getting stuff done. And the action beats at the very beginning and the very end, the submarine-based stuff, really well done. And I would say if you can find clips of that movie to watch, if you can see some of the submarine stuff, great. If you can see some clips just to watch some of the the giant octopus stop motion. It is interesting how the fluid motion of the tentacles is a different sort of stop motion challenge, I think, than the dinosaur lumbering around. And it's interesting to see. So yeah, watch clips from It Came From Beneath the Sea, but you don't need to watch the whole movie. Yeah. But then there's the question of where to go from there. Yeah, revive, reboot, or rest in peace for It Came From Beneath the Sea. Rest in peace. Yeah. I, I'm kind of there, like, giant octopus is actually, giant sixtopus is only <laughs> so fascinating on this. The the beast has no personality. It, it's like the scientists had more and the beast had less, and that means that there was less for me to get invested in in seeing more of what's going on. I mean... I guess there's a short story about the destroyed meatpacking plant suddenly having a very good supply of octopus to sell, <laughs> but that's a that's not as interesting. And you you previewed something we're going to have to talk about a lot over the course of all the Harryhausen movies we watch, and that is the personality of the creatures. But you're right. It Came From Beneath the Sea is an example of one in which the creature really didn't have a personality, and he wasn't an interesting character. It was just hungry. <laughs> That's all it was. So yeah, I, I say let that rest in peace. And then our question becomes, I, I, it's not the same questions as normal, but what, did, what was our overall thoughts of the Harryhausen work across these two films? What did this oh, okay. slice of Harryhausen say about the style we saw? What did we see that was distinct, I think? Okay, so we want to address that for the different kind of yeah. subsets of the Harryhausen movies if we're gonna that we group, watch? If we're going to group these together, each of these is going to give us something, some okay. slice of his work. So what is it that we got to see between these two that caught our eye as Harryhausen? Two things for me. One was the way he worked with water, the way that the ocean and the interaction with the ocean was a big part of what defined some of the most exciting scenes and the way the creatures moved, even more so with It Came From Beneath the Sea, but also with The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. I thought that was really interesting, and it was an interesting consistency between these movies. The other thing that really strikes you, really struck me, was the way he worked with scale. Oh, yeah. And this combination of models and live action and stop motion. I won't say it was seamless, but it all worked together in a way that it gave you a very believable sense of scale, even though I couldn't really tell you without looking it up how big the models that he was working with were. But they always had this consistent scale and this relationship to the environment around them. That is part of what made them seem so real, even though they were filmed in different places and then put together. Oh, yeah. I really took notice of the fact that we were describing how these two monsters were so different, but they were fine examples of his ability to animate either strong or quick. The, the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms had this strength. It, it bulged, it moved, it stomped, it pushed, and it forced its way around meanwhile this octopus is this wriggling thing with quicker moving tentacles and movements and the fact that the animation of these models was able to make both of those look fluid and have force and momentum was so much fun for me because it's like he always you were saying scale he kept them physical in that sense because they were moving around with a sense of internal scale as much as external scale in that thought. I loved that. Oh, those are great points. Maybe I'll have to look at, look at some of these clips again, because you're right. The, the octopus was quick and unpredictable in a way that the dinosaur very much wasn't. It was, it was a dinosaur. It was slow to get going. It was slow to stop and turn. It had this sense of weight and strength, like you described. But that's a very different sort of adversary than an octopus. So, we've watched the first part of 
Harryhausen Month 2021. I'm so excited that there's going to be more. <laughs> oh, yes. There's oh, going to yes. be more later this month. There'll be more Harryhausen. And, you know, I've got June planned out for the next couple of years of the podcast. I love this so much. <laughs> June just became one of my favorite months ever. Well, that's great. Yay. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks with, uh, with more tales, not only of media from the 20th century, but more tales from Ray Harryhausen. Dynamation. <laughs> so in the meantime, Dad, where can they find you online? Oh, you can find me at the website bymatthewporter.com. That's where you'll find links to whatever I'm doing. Uh, but you'll also find me on Twitter as bymatthewporter. And you'll find me on Twitch at uh, bymatthewporter. And uh, I've gotten more active on Twitch again. Monday evenings, Monday night, depending on where you are. I'll be on Twitch uh, showing and talking about retro RPGs. If you like retro movies and TV, like we talk about here in the podcast, come by on Twitch and I'll be talking about things like First Edition Traveler and First Edition AD&D and other uh, early 70s and 80s tabletop RPGs. Just been cool to see you pulling them <laughs> out of the boxes. I haven't even gotten to see a live stream of them all, so that's awesome. And where can people find you, Ian? I can be found on Twitter as Item Crafting, on Twitch as Item Crafting Live, and at itemcrafting.com. And you can find the podcast on Twitter at IMMPcast. You can also find the podcast online at immproject.com. That's where you'll find links to all of our past episodes. You'll also find a contact page there, a link to our Discord. We'd love to hear from you on Discord or on Twitter or uh, by email on the contact page. Let us know what you think of Harryhausen movies. What are your favorites? What did you think of these two early ones? What did you think of Mighty Joe Young? And should I go watch it again? Uh, and uh, on that website, immproject.com, you'll also find a link to our uh, shop if you want to buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, notebooks, all kinds of fun things there. And a link to our Patreon. Anybody who can support us there, we really appreciate it. And Patreon supporters also get extra audio content and members at the IMMP Movie Club level. We'll also periodically get a DVD of something that's coming up on the podcast. Uh-huh. Another great way to support the podcast is if you can just tell your friends about it, go on iTunes, give us some stars, give us a rating. That helps other people find it. and We really appreciate it. So we'll be back in a, a couple of weeks and uh, we look forward to talking to you then. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>